Welcome to True Crime IRL. I'm your host, Kelly Barron's Brink. In the summer of 2019, there were a few Iowa murders that really had me rattled. And they really affected the rest of the United States as well. In fact, even though I had always had a voracious appetite for true crime, a couple of these cases were what prompted me to start my true crime podcast that year. The beginning of my podcasting career was a little rocky. I did not know what I was doing. I made more than a few mistakes. And I ended up getting a little frustrated. And I was also just super busy with life. So I put the podcast to bed, so to speak. I took down my old episodes at that time. So chances are you never heard the one you're about to hear today. But this is the perfect week for me to re-release this episode because I cover three stories in this episode. And one of them was Molly Tibbetts, who went missing in the summer of 2019 and was later found murdered. At the time of this podcast, this week, actually, her killer's trial has begun, and I'm interested to see how it unfolds. Another murder I covered in this episode you're about to hear is that of Iowa State University athlete Celia Arozamena, who was murdered by a mentally ill, homeless young man within just days of the Molly Tibbetts murder. He pleaded guilty to the crime, and he's serving life in prison right now. And finally, I discussed the domestic violence-related murder of Andrea Sokolowski, whose boyfriend murdered her in the heat of passion. He was recently found guilty just in February 2021 of his girlfriend's murder. These three women had their lives stolen from them. And with their stories coming up in the news again, I thought it would be a great time to re-release this old episode that many of you never got a chance to hear. So this is the re-released episode of my first first podcast episode I ever recorded, Missing and Murdered in Iowa, Summer 2019. (laughs) I'm just a mom with a mic who likes to talk about murder. Well, and a few other crimes mixed in there too. Welcome to True Crime IRL, hosted by Kelly Brink. So, I may be an Iowa native, but let's face it, I can I can come clean. Iowa is a flyover state. You may have flown over our patchwork of cornfields on your coast-to-coast flight from LaGuardia to LAX. We're smack dab in the middle of the U.S., and we are the heartland of America. (laughs) Iowa is generally a safe place with, honest to goodness, the friendliest people and the nicest people and a beautiful natural landscape and great schools and just so many awesome things. If you're born and raised here, you'll probably stay here. And if you didn't stay here, you'll probably move back one day. Because Iowans love Iowa. And we Iowans tend to feel pretty shell-shocked when we hear the word murder in relation to one of our own. So the summer of 2018 in particular had many of us on high alert. We had one strong young woman go missing, and another was stalked and murdered in broad daylight. And yet another woman's life was stolen by someone she loved. These are things that just don't happen every day in Iowa. Today, I'm going to talk about Molly Tibbetts, 
Celia Barkin Arosamena, and Andrea Sokolowski, whose lives were brutally ended in a series of bizarre crimes that just don't happen around here. But you know, the longer I research true crime, the more I'm finding that darkness can find its way in anywhere, regardless of where you live. Which is why I always say, lock your doors, people. These disappearances slash murders happened in the span of about two months in the summer of 2018. And I can say that for me personally, they shook me. They changed me. Now, I didn't know the victims, although I did have loose ties to a few of the things in their lives. I have acquaintances who knew Molly's family. I graduated from U of I where Molly went, and she would have actually been in my nephew's graduating class of college had she survived. Celia, who went to Iowa State, was attending school there at the same time as my oldest son. And Andrea lived just about 20 minutes from the town where I was born and raised. These women were trying to do things in their lives that helped make them stronger and better, They were showing the world, hey, I'm not afraid to live my life on my own terms to the fullest. They didn't cower or hide from the world. They just went out and lived their lives. But their lives were stolen from them. And I'm not going to lie, it made me afraid. It made me afraid to go to the gym late at night. It made me afraid to walk through the parking lot in the dark. It made me wary of what I posted on social media. And to be perfectly honest... The events that took place in the summer of 2018 in Iowa made me feel, for the first time in my life, a little bit scared to be a woman, and quite frankly, a little bit scared of men. This is True Crime IRL Episode 2, Missing and Murdered in Iowa, Summer 2018. In the summer of 2018, Molly Tibbetts was an adorably cute 20-year-old sophomore at the University of Iowa. She had big brown eyes, long brown hair, and tan skin from a summer spent in the sun. She was spending her summer living with her boyfriend, Dalton Jack, in the small farming town of Brooklyn, Iowa. And when I say small, I mean small. It was a town of about 1,500 people. Molly was working that summer in the nearby town of Grinnell at a daycare center. July 16th, 2018 is the last day Dalton Jack would see his girlfriend Molly alive as he left early the next morning, the 17th, for his construction job out of town. Molly was staying at Dalton's house and watching his dogs. On July 18th, Dalton and Molly chatted back and forth a little bit via text and social media like most young people do. Molly then told Dalton that she had to go for a bit because she was going to go for her nightly jog. This was Molly's usual routine. So summers in Iowa are very hot and humid, and when the weather was comfortable and not too hot outside, Molly loved to run outside before the sun would set, which happens by about 9.30 at night in July in Iowa. Molly was known to run both in town as well as the scenic gravel roads that were bordered by cornfields. Molly was wearing dark shorts and a pink tank top, and she was last seen by the people in town on her run at about 7.30 p.m. The next morning, 
on July 19th. Molly was supposed to work at the daycare, but she did not show up. She also didn't tell anyone that she wouldn't be at work. She didn't tell her boss, her boyfriend, not her mom, not her brother, and this just was not like Molly. And this is when her family starts to know, hey, there is something wrong here, and they reported her missing. Days passed as police officers searched cornfields, roads, and all around the Brooklyn area, but there was just no trace of Molly. They started to explore the possibility of finding information through the Fitbit that Molly would have been wearing, as well as her cell phone, which she usually took with her on her jogs. But nothing was bringing them any closer to Molly. So, you're a true crime fan, obviously. Are you wondering about the boyfriend? As we in the true crime community know, the husband or the boyfriend almost always did it. We all know that. So, did they look into Dalton Jack? Yes, they did. And he had a solid alibi, and he was a completely squeaky clean kid. He, his brother, and Molly's family were all ruled out very quickly as having no possibility of having anything to do with Molly's disappearance. It sounded at this point that they might be looking at a stranger abduction, which is so rare. So July 25th passed, which is my birthday. It's of no significance to this story, but it's my birthday, so I had to throw it in there. And on my birthday, I can tell you that Molly Tibbetts was very much on my mind. I was really holding out hope that they would miraculously find this girl alive and well. And then on July 26th, huge news. There was what was thought to be a solid lead. Someone reports seeing who they think is Molly Tibbetts at a truck stop in Kearney, Missouri, 230 miles from where she was last seen. So investigators spend some time there scouring over surveillance footage, interviewing witnesses, and searching the area, but they don't find anything solid there leading them to Molly. Although, this really did get hopes up that she could be alive somewhere and that she might be found. Well, as late July turns into August, the search continued for Molly. There's just this outpouring of help and hope and prayers coming from the community of Brooklyn and the state of Iowa and really the entire country. Just everyone wants to bring Molly home. Investigators released some information that there's something up with a local pig farm. They search the pig farm, and they search it again, so they for sure have some sort of lead. And at this point, my mind immediately went to the movie Hannibal, where, you know, the guy feeds his victims to the man-eating pigs, and, and they devour the victim, and nothing remains, and... Well, I think it's the movie Hannibal anyway, but anyway, here's the thing. Growing up in Iowa, which is like the pig farming capital of the U.S., you do hear stories of man-eating pigs. You actually do. When I was little, and I don't remember the exact details or whether it was true or folklore, but I think it was true. I heard numerous anecdotes about, you know, the farmer or farmers who were out tending to their hogs and had a heart attack and slipped or fell, um, or whatever it was, fell into the pig pen, passed out, and and they were eaten, bones and all, by their own livestock, never to be seen again. 
And I know for a fact <laughs> that I was not the only Iowan whose mind went there when this constant chatter about hog farms was being heard. People were wondering if maybe Molly could have been murdered and her body disposed of on a hog farm and maybe pigs could have eaten her and perhaps she would never be found. I know it sounds crazy to you city slickers out there, but trust me on this one. And to make people even more curious, the investigation started to focus more and more on a person of interest, hog farmer Wayne Cheney. He had a 70-acre farm near Brooklyn, Iowa. He had been questioned by police more than once, and he was also asked to take a polygraph test, which he did, and he apparently passed, even though I will say he should not have taken that polygraph test because you should always say no to a polygraph test. It does you no good ever. It's not admissible in court, and it can only hurt you. But back to Wayne Cheney. I don't know much about this guy, really, but I do know that the interviews he did with TV news reporters, he just seemed a little off. And by a little off, I mean a lot. He seemed like an odd duck. And he did have a little past incident with stalking that the news briefly touched on, but really didn't go into any details about. But he just seemed super guilty. And I mean, he was awkward. He was not well-spoken. He stuttered and stammered through his interviews. And I'll be the first one to admit, I was so sure that this would be the guy. Like, if we were making a movie about a young girl who went missing on a country road one summer night, I would have to give him a starring role as the creepy killer. And I feel bad saying this because he was eventually cleared and he had absolutely nothing to do with Molly's disappearance. And, and this is a great example of how damning the media can be to an innocent person. He was painted in such a sensationalistic way. I totally thought he was a killer and he was not. Just like if you remember Tara Grinstead's case, how her former boyfriend, Marcus Harper, was basically guilty in the eyes of a lot of people, and the media, they just kept hinting that, you know, he could have killed her, and which we all know now he did not. So I feel bad assuming someone could be a killer just by hearing about them or watching them on TV. But I digress. So the hunt went on for Molly. And hope remained that she was alive somewhere being held by someone she could have known. Vigils were held, press conferences happened, pleas were made by family to bring Molly home. Yet there was no evidence and there were no clues. Where was Molly? So I have this really amazing group of girlfriends. Seven of us scattered all across the U.S. and... They're my girl squad. They were my girl squad way back in high school, and they still are to this day. I love them, and I couldn't make it through a day without them. Hi, girls! So while Molly was missing, my tribe and I were sending a lot of texts back and forth about her, and we were just we were just all hoping she was alive and well. And we do this a lot, a lot, like with a lot of um, high-profile cases in the media. We like to bounce ideas back and forth and um, give suggestions and show each other news articles. So it's just, um, yeah, we were talking about this case a lot during that summer. 
But on the morning of August 21st, I got a text from a friend who has some inside connections to law enforcement saying they found Molly. She's dead. A man turned himself in and led police to her body. Now, I did not know Molly Tibbetts. I didn't know her family. I don't live in Brooklyn, Iowa, but that text, ugh, it was a punch to the gut. Because man, the entire state of Iowa felt so very unified when she was missing. And we all just hoped so hard and prayed that she'd come home safely. And it was just so, so, so sad that her story didn't end that way. And I want to cry just talking about it because it was just such a sad day finding out that everyone's hopes were crushed. On the night of July 18th, we know that Molly Tibbetts went for her usual evening run, but now we also know something Molly did not, that she wasn't alone on that run. Without her knowledge, someone was stalking Molly that night. As police scoured surveillance footage from all over the area, they spotted a Chevy Malibu that kept circling the exact areas where Molly was jogging. They were able to find out that that car belonged to Christian Bahena Rivera, a Mexican immigrant who had lived in the U.S. for a few years but was here illegally, which was a fact that would sadly become fuel for a political shitstorm in the following weeks. Rivera followed Molly in his car as she jogged. Eventually, he got out of his car, following her on foot. He ran behind her and then alongside of her. Molly was smart, and she had her cell phone with her, and she threatened him that she was going to call the police, which he said made him very angry. He claimed that he remembered getting angry, but then he said he blacked out after that. And when he came to, he states that he looked down and found some earbuds in his lap that did not belong to him. They were Molly's. And then he remembered putting a bloody Molly in his trunk. At that point, he says, he removed her body from his trunk and drug her into a cornfield. He covered her with corn stalks and left her there, face up in the dirt. Molly laid there in the muddy cornfield for five weeks. As the corn grew up around her, as the rain fell down, as the sun beat down on her body, and as the nights got cold. As they searched for Molly, she laid in the dirt of that cornfield for five weeks. Molly's autopsy states that she died of homicide resulting from multiple sharp force injuries. So in layman's terms, she was stabbed to death. Molly Tibbetts was finally laid to rest in the way that she deserved on Sunday, August 26, 2018, in a funeral ceremony among family and friends. Throughout her funeral, there was one common theme from those who knew her, and that was Molly loved life. She loved helping people. She had very liberal political beliefs, and ironically, she felt strongly about the subject of immigration. She felt that people from all walks of life should come together and be welcomed into this country. Her death has sadly been used as a political pawn in the immigration debate, which her family condemns. 
Her family, above all, has urged people to turn the page on Molly's tragic loss and to live life to the fullest for Molly. Iowans were still reeling from the senseless, random attack on Molly Tibbetts when another young woman's murder hit our local news. Are you kidding me? This cannot be happening. How can this happen in Iowa? Those are just a few of the thoughts that entered my mind when the news informed me on September 17th that an Iowa State student turned pro golfer was found stabbed to death at Coldwater Links Golf Course in the college town of Ames, Iowa. This is where my own son and many of his friends go to college. It's where my husband went to college, so I was dumbfounded. I felt like this was going to be Molly Tibbetts all over again, and I just kept thinking this doesn't happen in Iowa. Celia Barkeen Arosamena was a 22-year-old civil engineering major at Iowa State University. She had just finished her college golfing career, and she was set to graduate from the school after the fall semester. A Rosamena, originally from Spain, was a gifted athlete. She was a Big 12 champion golfer. She had recently been named the ISU Female Athlete of the Year. She had competed overseas, and she had just recently earned herself a spot in the U.S. Women's Open. Celia was a big deal. She was very well known in the golfing world, and she regularly associated with famous professional golfers. She was on the path to be a household name for her talents in golfing eventually. So on the morning of September 17th, Celia was doing something that she did frequently. She was golfing at Coldwater Links Golf Course. Although she was golfing solo that morning, Celia was not the only golfer on the course that day. A group of golfers had seen her golfing that morning. It was nothing unusual. But by the time that same group of golfers made it to the ninth hole, they knew something bad had occurred. They found Celia's cell phone, ball cap, and golf bag scattered on the ground on the fairway with no one in sight. Golfers called police who arrived to the course around 10.30 a.m. After a short half-hour search, police found Celia's body in a pond near where her belongings had been spotted. Celia had been assaulted, likely sexually assaulted. She was missing clothing. She was found in only a bra and a golf skirt. Blood was found on the fairway from the numerous stab wounds she had received to her upper torso, head, neck, and leg. After finding her body, officers brought police dogs to the crime scene. Those police dogs tracked Celia's scent to a homeless encampment near the golf course. This camp was not new, and it was known to police. In fact, it had a very bad reputation and a violent past. In May of 2008, a homeless drifter stabbed another homeless man there in a drunken fight, and that victim died. So homelessness in the college community of Ames, Iowa, was a well-known problem, and we would soon find out that it was the root of the second murder in this past decade. 
When police dogs tracked Celia's scent to this well-known homeless camp, they were able to speak to several witnesses that would bring them closer to their killer. Colin Daniel Richards was a 22-year-old homeless man who had been staying at the camp. Richards had shown up Monday, which would have been shortly after Celia had been murdered, and he was covered in blood, sand, and water. Colin Richards actually gave his blood-soaked shorts and a knife to two of his acquaintances, and those people were able to lead police to Colin Richards. Upon his arrest, Richard's face was covered in fresh scratches, which was an indication that Celia had fought for her life. He also had a deep cut on his hand that was similar to the knife pattern in several of Celia's stab wounds. Friends of Richard state that in the days leading up to Celia's brutal murder, he had discussed his deep desire to rape and kill a woman. And that's exactly what he did. There are some things here that are really concerning beyond the obvious brutal murder of a woman. So first off, There's a dirty little secret in the town of Ames, Iowa, and it's their large homeless population. Two brutal murders had occurred within the past decade at or near the very same homeless camp. Why, after the 2008 murder that occurred there, was this homeless camp still around 10 years later in 2018? Could Celia's murder have been avoided had the community of Ames done more to help their homeless community and at the very least crack down on this particular well-known camp where violent crimes were taking place? I'm not blaming the city of Ames for Celia's murder in any way, but this is a question we really need to be asking. Colin Daniel Richards had a really troubled violent past. I don't want to focus on the murderer here or take the spotlight of the innocent victim that Celia was, but to understand the senseless act, we need to understand the person who perpetrated it. And that person was an extremely troubled boy who from a young age was placed in the system and that began the cycle of crime for him. He was a troubled boy with serious mental health problems who turned into a teen who acted out and broke the law. Because the system failed him and focused on crime and punishment instead of mental health and rehabilitation, Richards turned into the violent grown man who committed this murder. Rather than be rehabilitated and treated for his mental illness, he was punished for it. And I'm sorry, but look what happened. As a kid, Richards was raised by his grandparents and eventually ended up in the Iowa foster care system. He was placed in the Clorinda Academy, which is a for-profit correctional slash foster facility for troubled youth. I said for-profit. It is a for-profit youth correctional facility, meaning they make money. They profit off of housing troubled kids there. Clorinda Academy in Iowa is just one of many large-scale group homes for troubled youths across the country that is run by their parent company, which is called Sequel. All of Sequel's youth detention centers are for-profit. Do you see a problem here? I do. 
Several reports have said that facilities like Clorinda Academy do not offer the mental health treatment that these kids so desperately need. And in fact, that their heavy use of physical punishments, restraints, and more do nothing but further traumatize kids. And it goes without saying that being in a prison-like institution where you're a foster child who has already been abused and traumatized, it's not going to be helpful. This place has just a plain bad reputation. The conditions there have been described as dismal at best, and they have a long history of all kinds of abuse allegations. Kids being sexually and violently physically abused by staff, and just a lot more. For example, in 2016, Clorinda Academy hired a convicted felon who went on to sexually assault underage women at the facility. Exploring the conditions, abuse allegations, and the shady goings-on at the Clorinda Academy and its parent company, Sequel, is a huge rabbit hole that I could easily go down, and I do hope to go down that path in a later podcast episode, because it's extremely interesting and it's very it's a it's a very important topic that needs to be discussed. Crime's an interesting subject, but our country has a really shitty way of handling at-risk people and handling rehabilitation and recidivism rates. Which brings me back to Colin Richards who stole the life of Celia Arosamena. There's not a lot of information available about Colin Richards' parents, but we do know that he was raised by his grandparents. We also know that Richards' troubles with the law began when he was around 10 years old. Even as a boy, he battled mental illness and he got into a lot of trouble. I can only assume that he may have had some trauma in his life and some issues that probably stemmed from not having his parents in his life. In his later teen years, his troubles with the law only escalated. At 17, he smashed up some windows with a baseball bat and he was charged with criminal mischief and he was fined. At 18, he was caught stealing from a convenience store and threatened to shoot up the place. His drug use also spiraled out of control. High on meth one night, he rolled his vehicle on a country road Then he walked to a farmhouse, stole a truck, and he was given, ultimately, a two-year suspended prison sentence and two years of probation for that crime. In the same year, he was charged with domestic assault against a woman who he put in a chokehold and dragged outside. For that, another year of probation was added. Colin Richards was coming unraveled. Later that same year, after an altercation with a man, he got into his vehicle, floored it, and rammed into the back of this person's truck in a show of force, causing thousands of dollars of damage to their vehicle. For that, two more years of probation were tacked on to his sentence. At this point, he was destined to be on probation well into adulthood. The next couple years would bring numerous other run-ins with the law. Several charges that would be dismissed, such as possession of various weapons, a home break-in, public intox, more fines, which he did not have the money to pay, and more years of probation added on to his sentence. 
With all these years of probation that he needed to serve, you can imagine that a troubled young man without a stable roof over his head, a drug addiction, mental illness, and mounting debt, yeah, he had numerous parole violations. In fact, after his fourth parole violation, he was ordered into a residential treatment facility. He was only there a few months. Upon his release, his meth use only increased. He spent a lot of his time homeless and drifting. He owed the state of Iowa a lot of money, which, due to his circumstances, he couldn't come anywhere close to paying. He owed money to the correctional facility he had stayed at as part of his sentence. He also owed money to the behavioral programs that he had been ordered to begin, which he stopped and started at least four times. The endless cycle of mental illness, drug abuse, criminal charges, probation violations, and fines eventually landed him in prison. And this was the beginning of Colin Richards' rock bottom. Like so many troubled people, when Richards was released from prison in summer of 2018, the odds were completely stacked against him. Upon his release, he was homeless. He floated around and had brief stints crashing with friends and his grandparents, but ultimately a homeless encampment near the Coldwater Lynx golf course was where he would call home. This homeless camp was well known to law enforcement in the Ames area, as I mentioned before, and it had been there for at least a decade. It was made up of several tents where homeless people would sleep, eat, drink, and use drugs. As Richard's life grew more and more hopeless that summer, and his meth use increased, he began voicing his dark thoughts to friends who lived at the camp with him. Most disturbingly, Colin Richards said that he had a deep desire to rape and murder a woman, and that became his goal and his obsession. Celia Barkeen Arosamina was a beautiful person inside and out. She was loved by so many. She will be remembered for her infectious laugh, her strength, her athletic prowess, and as being a strong, independent woman and a goal crusher. She was Colin Richards' victim, and he took her life on September 17, 2018. But I think she was not just his victim. She was the victim of a society that doesn't take mental illness and addiction seriously enough. A society that doesn't see the troubled youths in the system as victims too and that doesn't put the work in to fix those little souls before the cycle goes on to perpetrate more violence and take more lives. What if Colin Daniel Richards had parents who were there for him? What if the powers that be took a 10-year-old Colin and gave him the treatment, the understanding, the therapy, the medication, the guidance, and the help he needed when he was only a child? What if 10-year-old Colin never ended up going to the for-profit Clorinda Academy, the home for troubled kids, where the kids are further victimized by convicted felons, are restrained, traumatized, and scarred for life. What if? Would Celia be alive today? It's an important question we need to think on for a while. Think about it.
The summer of 2018 was kind of intense for us Iowans, especially women, especially women who enjoyed the independence of going running on a gorgeous summer night while the cicadas sung into our ears and the cornstalks swayed in the breeze. Women who previously felt safe going for a target run after dark to grab a few essentials now wanted to stay in and lock their doors before the sunset. Women who enjoyed walking the nature trails, riding the bike path, earbuds blaring while soaking up the scenery. We were all robbed of feeling secure in those sort of me-time moments. I no longer even felt safe going to my 24-hour gym. If no one was there with me, I found myself first checking the bathrooms for lurking predators. I would quickly turn my head over and over to look behind me while I ran on the treadmill. And if I wasn't alone, and if there was a male in the gym with me, I had to totally talk myself out of thinking he was going to hit me over the head with a barbell at any given moment, only to wake up chained to the wall of his basement dungeon. Call me a drama queen, but this was my mentality at the end of the summer 2018. I'm a strong, independent country girl who can shoot a gun, clean a fish, and butcher livestock. I can totally hold my own. But as a woman who's grown up in that place where you don't feel like you need to worry about locking your doors at night, having these crimes hit me so close to home stripped me of that safe feeling I knew so well. I was in the gym walking on the treadmill with Celia still on my mind when yet another story of an Iowa woman who had been brutally murdered came across the TV. But this case would be very different than Celia and Molly. Andrea Sokolowski, or Andy as her family and friends called her, was a gorgeous brunette and a fun, carefree spirit. She had a weakness for shopping, and she was very interested in astrology and zodiac symbolism. She loved life, and she lived it to the fullest. To put it quite bluntly, this girl was hot. She reminded me of a woman that would have been in a music video in the 80s, crawling on a car or kissing the lead singer of Great White or Poison or Warrant. And I know that that reference ages me. (laughs) So it's no big surprise that at the age of 50, Andrea Sokolowski easily snagged a much younger boyfriend. And that was Zachary Nelson Bassett, age 32. And even though things between Andy and Zach started out great and they were in love, they quickly went down a dark path. Andy had been married and divorced three times throughout her life, and she had five children throughout her three marriages. Some might say she had a hard time finding a good guy, which was exactly the case when she ended up with the much younger Bassett. Andrea was a Sioux City, Iowa native, where she was employed as a Shell gas station clerk and a Spanish interpreter at the Siouxland Community Health Center. Bassett's addresses have reached from various locations in Kansas, Missouri, and Iowa, but eventually he ended up in the small town of Webster City, Iowa. Now, to say Andrea and Bassett had a tumultuous relationship is an understatement. And in the year and a half leading up to Andrea's death, 
she had endured some vicious domestic violence at the hand of her boyfriend. Andrea's friends and family were no stranger to frequently receiving text messages from her asking for help and reporting details of beatings that she had sustained at the hand of Bassett. They frequently saw her just covered in bruises. In one beating that summer of 2018, Andrea suffered a serious injury to her mouth that required dental surgery. Bassett regularly vandalized Andrea's car, slashed her tires, and just controlled and manipulated his girlfriend. It was well known that he was very jealous, controlling, and violent. Later that summer, while staying at a motel with her boyfriend, Bassett beat her severely, throwing her into a window and shattering it. A good Samaritan stepped in, armed with a gun, and broke up the fight. And Andrea would be safe for just a little while longer. After this series of violent encounters with Bassett, Andrea decided to end the relationship and get her life back on track. She told a friend that if she didn't leave Zach, She was going to end up dead. She knew that he was going to kill her. She was finally ready to remove the grip that he had over her life. And she took out a protective order against him, preventing him from having any contact with her. Yet, like so many abused women do, in September of 2018, Andrea visited Zach Bassett at his Webster City apartment. Early in the morning of September 22nd, 911 operators received a call from Vassett stating that he and Andrea had been drinking and that they fell asleep. And he said that when he woke up, she was unresponsive. He stated that he performed CPR on Andrea to no avail, but later an autopsy would disprove that. What actually happened is that Bassett decided to dish out one final and fatal beating, killing the woman who loved him. Andrea was beaten to death by her boyfriend, Bassett. She had hemorrhaging near the right carotid artery, petechiae hemorrhages to the eyes and face, and contusions on her upper arms. Basically, she died of internal bleeding due to the injuries she sustained, and she was pronounced dead at the hospital. Andrea Sokolowski was survived by her five children and her five grandchildren. Zachary Bassett was charged with first-degree murder, and at the time of this podcast, he's currently awaiting a March 2019 trial. What makes men kill? Why? I could ask this question a thousand times. It's the one word that enters my head, and it's the reason why I cover the cases that I do. Unfortunately, I think it's a question that will probably never be answered, but I will never stop asking why. Are some men just wired this way? Is it a history of their own abuse that they have suffered that makes them this way? Is it mental illness? Drug abuse? Are they just pure evil? And if so, again, why? Thank you for listening to True Crime IRL Episode 2, Missing and Murdered in Iowa, Summer 2018. 
I'm Kelly Brink. Please visit truecrimeirl.com for more information. You can follow us on all the socials at truecrimeirl. Do you have a story you'd like me to cover? Then email me at truecrimeirl at truecrimeirl.com. And hey, we're starting a Patreon. We're getting on the whole Patreon bandwagon, so keep an ear out for more details to follow with that soon. Until next time, lock your doors, people. Lock your doors. Just lock them. Lock them. Bye-bye.